Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Capitalism. You know, everybody's throwing that term around right now, right? Capitalism, as I see it, encourages limitless opportunity. It encourages innovation, right? But at the heart of it lies the freedom to pursue profits, money. Capitalism, as you guys know, is under attack lately. I mean, many believe that the government should prop up and support all citizens. You know, there isn't enough money for that. Plus, giving people the fish kind of kills the innovation within an individual to create a better fishing pole now. All right. I've always felt, though, that we should absolutely help the helpless, but the truly helpless, people who got the short end of the societal stick, like, say, a kid from the south side of Chicago named Darius Quarles. When he was four years old, his father was murdered and his mother became a drug addict. By five, he was in foster care. No one to really help him. Can you imagine that? Imagine nobody really caring for you or about you. I'd say that's a helpless kid we should help, right? But Darius did not wait around for anybody to help him. By the time this guy was in high school, he wanted to participate in sports, but uniforms and training took money. So he started a little business. He sold candy at school, but he was so good at it. His friends christened him the candy man. But I mean, really, you guys, could he sell enough candy to pay for college? No. So how in the heck did this guy secure $1 million to pay for his college education and then start a company to help others do the same? Well, let's ask him. We're joined by the extraordinary Darius Quarles, founder and CEO of Bro Capital. Darius, 12 people, you know, independent of each other on my team. I mean, I'm overstating it, but read about you. We all came rushing together and said, we got to get this guy on Everyone Talks to Liz. Welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Liz. I appreciate it. I guess your story really hit a a very important nerve for all of us because you've overcome so many obstacles. And our podcast highlights the, the insurmountable experiences people go through to achieve success. But uh, the most important question we like to answer for our listeners is, how did you do it? And and I guess we should begin with the story of how you grew up on the south side of Chicago. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you you provided the introductory context to sort of my earliest years, my earliest memories. So my father was a very prominent drug dealer on the south side of Chicago. Um, it's how he provided for his family. How many of the um, men on the south side of Chicago actually provided for their family at that time. Unfortunately, that lifestyle led to his early passing, his early death. In 1994, um, he was killed. He was stabbed. Um, and he did not make it through that incident. Mm-hmm. And that significantly affected my mother, as it would affect anyone. Um, but it, it was devastating to her, not just in terms of his presence being lost, but you know the financial 
aspect that he provided for the family um, was devastating. And, you know, that had a tremendous effect on her. And the way that manifested itself was through addiction. And that prevented her from being able to take care of my older brother and I. Um, So for the rest of our childhoods from that point forward, you know, we would find ourselves in foster care. My brother at the age of, of, of eight and myself at the age of four, we entered foster care. And for myself, I, you know, really for my brother and myself, we, we both spent the, he spent, I think the next 10 to 11 years in foster care. I spent the rest of my childhood. So up until the age of 18, I spent it in foster care and I experienced the entire gamut of our United States foster care assistance, every different type of placement. I've stayed with family. I stayed with total strangers. I stayed in a group home. I stayed and even, you know, sort of in a very fascinating turn of events. The last two years of my high school experience, I spent them living independently. So I had my own apartment. Um, and at the age of 16, 17, 18, I was living on my own on the south side of Chicago. Were you and your brother separated? Because I can imagine you're torn away from your mom. Your father is gone at age four. I don't know how you wrap your mind around the fact that the dad that you knew is gone forever. Um, and then all you have is your brother to cling to. Did you guys get to stay together at all? Oh, I, I, I cling to him. And he he protected me in a in a grand way, covered over me um, and ensured that I was I was safe, particularly during that sort of that phase before the Illinois state got involved. And we were we were sort of really just wandering around and, you know, to our own defenses um, until DCFS actually opened up an investigation and the case. But he, he tremendously protected me. Unfortunately, we did get separated at some point. In our experience, many of our years we spent them together, um, but the, the foster care system as a whole is in need of a great deal of innovation and, and help in, in our, our world today. Um, because there are a lot of children who are, you know, get separated from siblings, even when that sibling is, in a lot of ways, the only person who they really have. Um, so yeah, we did get separated, um, but it was it was much later. In, in my childhood that that happened. So you're in high school. Let's let's fast forward to that because that's a very tender time in mm-hmm. a teenager's life. And you don't really have any money, but you want to do things like participate in sports. How did you come to be selling candy to your friends? It, it was really just something, just an idea sort of sparked in my mind from observing the fundraisers that so many of the sports organizations and student organizations within the school would do, mm-hmm. you know, legitimately to, to sort of raise money for whatever cause um, that, that they that they had. I quickly realized that, you know, I could do that I, independent of anyone sort of, you know, leading me or guiding me. So I could do that easy and I probably can do it better. Right. Because there were the way they did the fundraisers, there was a lot of restrictions around how they could sell the candy. Whereas, <laughs> you know, like with me going in there independently, you know, a lot of those restrictions weren't there. I was so good at selling candy. This was 
my freshman and sophomore year. Okay, so you have to so, you have to tell us how you were so good and how you made your profits. Like, tell me how you how you concocted this this little deal here. Yeah, really, it was. Um, I was just annoying about it, at least to the teachers. <laughs> right, I was very annoying about it because I'm I'm selling candy during the actual class period, not <laughs> not just before the class starts and after or during the in between periods. I'm like, you know, I'm a vendor during class. If anybody gets an urge <laughs> during this point in class, it's like they know exactly who to point to. And it would it would often just be days where I come to school with, with enough supply and I'm selling out, you know, like every day. So I was actually so good at selling candy. The way it actually stopped in my experience is I got suspended for selling so much candy, like that oh. they, they much had to shut my operation down. They so, should have held you up as an example of a true capitalist. I agree. I was actually quite confused as to why that happened. But I was being disruptive. I can be honest about that. Yeah. Um, because, again, because I was so good at it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was sort of that. That was my initial experience into entrepreneurship, into sort of building something of my own, um, marketing strategy, et cetera. Okay. Well, one thing that is probably a true statement is that you can be successful at making a couple of cents here and there, profit on candy and selling it, but somehow this this looming gigantic dollar sign of college and how you were going to pay for it was suddenly on the horizon. And you knew you wanted to go to college? Yes, I did. It and that was not always my goal. I did not enter. I did not enter high school actually a a very disciplined student, a great student in terms of just you know scholarliness at all. Mm-hmm. Wasn't focused. You know, I'm 14 years old, and the world around me is in a, of course, the the earth spinning literally, but the world around me is just you know spinning. I'm living with my grandmother under her care at the time and um, rest in peace to my grandmother. And she was such a loving, caring woman, but she wasn't really in the position mm-hmm. to sort of watch over a 14 year old, right? And everything a 14 year old wants to do. And particularly as, you know, a young male, I'm, I want to be active. I want to be able to go out. I want to be able to do things and I want to be able to do them with a certain level of independence. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't really something where she was mobile enough to do all of those things. So in a lot of ways, I was very like restricted at mm-hmm. that point in time. And so school by default became the place where I could be free and act up okay. in a lot of ways. Right. So freshman year, you know, I'm I'm acting out in a variety of different ways in class. And beyond that, as I, as I reflect on the experience, I know that I'm going through a lot of trauma mentally as well that has never been resolved. And I haven't been able to talk to anybody about those things. So emotionally, I'm unstable as well, but I'm supposed to be focused, right? And, you know, doing homework every day and being disciplined. Mm-hmm. And though I just didn't have my mind wrapped around those things. What was Luckily, the moment then that, that it clicked where you said, you know what? I want to go to college. Got to find the money. Nobody around me has it. Nobody's going to give it to me. I would describe it as a very slow 
and arduous like transformation and mm-hmm. journey across really three years, right? To where it was really junior year that it it clicked for me. It was that was the year where I actually started living on my own. Um and in living independently, I really started to think about my future and my life in a way that I had never before. I was I would describe my childhood as really like sort of just this I'm caught in between thinking about the past all of the time and everything that I've been through and only being focused on like what's right in front of me, right? That was mm-hmm. th- those are my only two two phases of, of my mind. Never really something where I gave a lot of thought to like my hopes, my dreams, my future, what I wanted for myself, what what is beyond this experience of like foster care and you know, feeling like the the only time I interact with an adult is when they're telling me what to do, right? I didn't have too many experiences as a child where I interacted with adults and I felt like we were equal and I felt like there was like respect and mutual love and you know, somebody who was really willing to like help me and guide me. It was really just kind of a whole lot of like finger pointing and like, Mm -hmm. this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. This is when you're going to talk. This is when you're not going to talk, et cetera. And so I I never had much time and space to think about like what I wanted for myself and sort of begin making decisions around that. And so 2006 was that first year for me to do that, living on my own. And when I did make the decision to say that I wanted to go to college. And at that point, I was on track to actually, you know, qualify and be prepared as well. Because, you know, as I grew, I also became a lot more focused on mm-hmm. academics in my grades, which was, which was amazing. The first thing I looked at was the money. That was the very first thing I looked at, not the college I wanted to go to, not what I wanted to study. <laughs> the very first thing I looked at was let me just quickly glance at how much this thing might cost. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So you took a look at the cost, the numbers, and what did you see for college? The cheapest option, $25,000 a year for in-state expenses. The most expensive option, private, out-of-state, $60,000 to $70,000 a year. Um, And so some of the schools that I actually really looked at and were seriously considering, this would have at minimum been a $250,000 degree. Did you think about saying, forget it, I can't do this? There was a small point. There was a very, very small point 
of doubt. But immediately, my mind just went to how can I develop a plan now to pay for this? Because I knew that my parents didn't have it. I knew that my family didn't have it. I knew that it wasn't in my bank account, of course. So from that point forward, there was sort of this this motivation that developed to really focus in on the financial piece first and then allow that to lead the rest of the process. Well, the saying is the going gets tough, the tough get going. Buddy, you are tough. So what was the first thing you did to tackle this problem of figuring out how to find the money for college? So I took out a a sheet of paper and I wrote down my goals for the rest of my high school experience. And some of those goals were just like life goals in general as well. And I wrote down win a million dollars in scholarships. That was the sort of the goal that I wrote down on the sheet of paper. And I knew that that was like, I knew it was far-fetched at the time. I knew that I don't actually really even know where the number 1 million came from. It was just sort of like the mentality of I'm going to set the bar extremely high. I'm going to I'm going to do something that seems outrageous almost in my mind at the time. All but it's right. Like, I like this. Million, <laughs> like I won't have to worry about any of this, right? And um fascinatingly enough, that really set me on a like a relentless path of you know, just not being okay with being mediocre, not being okay with just having enough, but, you know, really just setting the bar extremely high in my mind. And um, from from that point forward, then it's like, okay, I have this very large goal. I know that I'm going to have to work extremely hard in order to achieve this. This this won't be something that will simply come to me, right? I'm, it's It's going to not just be the hard work, but I'm I'm going to have to be relentless when it comes to this. So where did you start when it came to digging up and rooting out scholarships? There's a there's a great resource um, that was provided to me by someone who is now also a great mentor to me. But at the time, I, did, I didn't know anything about it. Great resource called scholarships.com. So for any parents out there who are listening, who might be sort of going through this journey right now, and they're thinking about, okay, what resources out there might my child be able to leverage to you know advance in this process scholarships.com great resource they compiled all of these scholarships in one place on a digital platform where i was able to simply log in and begin doing all of my research of these are all of the various opportunities okay. that are out there both locally and nationally that i could potentially leverage so when you mm-hmm. rack them up and you landed these scholarships, did you think about that and say, oh my gosh, I just raised a huge amount of coin? I think at the end, I did have a moment to actually reflect. I, even while I was hitting the milestones, 250, 500, 750, et cetera, I really didn't stop to think about it. Like I, I, My mind wasn't in a congratulatory state or a state of like, patting myself on the back at all at that in the in the moment of doing it all it was really once it was like okay I'm done the process is it I'm about to graduate we're reflecting back now and I saw that I actually surpassed that million dollar goal ended Mm. up getting 1.15 million actually um and so you know literally set a high bar but was able to you know cross over it 
in a in a very momentous way. Like a, a lot of these scholarships weren't, you know, small scholarships. They were large, very large checks, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changed my life. It literally changed the path of my entire life. But, that point but you took the so-called bull by the horns. You did not wait for some grown-up to help you. You're a foster kid, and you ended up at Morehouse College. Mm-hmm. What did you think you were going to major in? What did you want to become at that point? I wanted to become a physician, a doctor. And that was that had been a goal in my mind since I was a little boy. Um, and so I, I showed up, you know, my father dropped me off at Morehouse and So your you legal know, father? Yes, my right. legal father, mm-hmm. my adoptive father, dropped me off at Morehouse and it was like a big job well done at that point. Like that in and of itself was amazing for mm-hmm. me because that was also my literal emancipation as well, in terms of I was now no longer a foster child either, mm-hmm. right? Um no longer living in Chicago. It was it was just a, a nah, lot of new chapters um, that that were turned, a lot of new leaves that were turned in that in that moment. And I w- I majored in biology. I, I you know that's what I came in majoring, and I I did end up studying biology throughout the course of it, and ended up double majoring. But through that college experience, I learned so much, I grew so much, and I think the biggest thing that I'm very grateful to Morehouse for was the the opportunity it provided for me to be open intellectually mm. and to really question not just the world, but also question myself, like question my own desires and the, the, the things that I said I wanted for myself and really asking that secondary question of, is this what you really want? You say you want this, but why do you want it? Like really have a real answer to that. And to be honest, when I asked myself that question and did that introspection, I realized that I did not want to be a physician for myself. That was not something that was like my goal. Your that burning was, desire, your passion. It was not. It was not at all. Okay. It was It was the thing that I wanted to do to impress all of the people who I interacted with as a child, right? A, tra- a traumatized child where anytime I told Anybody I engage with, when they ask me, of course, the burning question everybody loves to ask the children, (laughs) what do you want to be when you get older? Every time I said, I want to be a doctor, eyes just lit up and faces just started glowing. And I (laughs) I got such a loving reaction from it that, you know, that just made me feel so good to get that reaction from people that, you know, I just sort of went with it from my very you know, youthhood on up. And I just kept regurgitating that answer. But when you came to this, I literally had believed it. When you came to this cathartic moment of, I don't want to be a physician. I I want to do something else. You had such passion when you were the candy man and you were selling. And then, and then you tackle this goal of raising a million dollars in scholarships just to get yourself to college. And you did it. Mm -hmm. You founded million dollar scholar, a for-profit company that what connects low income high school students to scholarships for higher education for college and yeah. you created this at the age of 19 tell me yes. 
how important it was to share your experience with other students seeking higher education. It was extremely important to me because I want to be very candid about the fact that I did have help in that process, that there were folks who who guided me, who sort of lit that initial spark. And then from there, it was really all up to me to carry that sort of torch that was mm-hmm. that was lit for me and really do the work at the end of the day. Right. Um, but I fa- what I found in doing so much of that work is that I was I was experimenting and finding so much out on my own, Mm. right? So much of the information that I became privy to was not, it was something that I had to independently uncover. It wasn't something where like somebody actually sat me down and sort of connected me to these gems of knowledge. And that was troubling for me because it's like, wow, this, this is information that can change lives. I want to see this in the hands of as, many use this possible. Oh, I don't want to hoard this knowledge. Incredible. This is something that oh. all students should graduate high school with. They should, this should be a class in school. This should be something where we're, we're getting this, particularly for the students where finance could literally be a make it or break it in terms mm-hmm. of you thinking about higher education, right? Well, then you eventually started the first fintech startup for black male millennials, and you called it Bro Capital, B-R-E-A-U-X, the fancy mm-hmm. French spelling. Um, exactly. How'd you come up with the name? Uh, my co-founder and I, my co-founder, Ross Hassan, um, we, were, we were ideating. We were just sitting back ideating. <laughs> I had recently read a book, uh, a great marketing book, where I knew that the thing that we needed to do in terms of finding a catchy name, a name that was going to stick is, I said, we have to interrelate it with something that people would commonly use in their language already, right? And it was, we sort of came up with this concept and it's like, bro, brother, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's something we often, you know, call ourselves, sure. particularly black men when we're amongst each other and in, 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 uh, socializing in company with one another. And and as immediately when I said that, Ross came up with the name. It was Ross. It was Ross was like, I got it. And I remember the moment he's like, I got it, bro. B R E A U X. And at the time, we were actually building Million Dollar Scholar. He's also the co-founder of Million Dollar Scholar as well. We were in New Orleans building Million Dollar Scholar at the time. Wow. Of course, being in that New Orleans spirit, it just it melded together. It all made sense. It was serendipitous. And uh, the rest was sort of history from there. And the focus with Bro Capital is very different. It involves allowing the customers, the people whom you bring on, to actually own a part of the business? Yes. So it's a cooperatively owned company. Very, It's flipping the whole sort of traditional financial services model on its head in that regard, right, mm-hmm. of actually giving the customers true power, right? And to say how the product looks, um, how the company runs, and giving them an opportunity to actually make money when mm-hmm. the company makes money, right? So mm-hmm. um, not everybody is a co-owner in the company who who is a customer, um, but 80%. So four out of every five um, customers who are involved, they're not just customers, but they're also co-owners. They're also sort of co-managing the business. And that is just such a, a fascinating model in that regard because it's it's really empowering people to sort of take control of their own finances, be involved 
in their finances, right? Be involved in the process of, of getting to financial health and financial wellness. And you're helping people save their money. You know, when you're talking about um, African-Americans in the community, sometimes they're ignored by Wall Street. In fact, a lot of times I've watched this happen. So you've made people financially intelligent. And that's not an easy thing to do to get people to get into the habit of auto-saving, you know, auto-debiting from your paycheck to just sock some away. Indeed, indeed. Um, and we we have the knowledge to know that, you know, traditional banks, the, the traditional sort of financial services industry who has in so many ways looked over the black community, mm-hmm. that they are missing out on such a major market opportunity. Mm. And there have been so many different instances where, you know, large banks have really lost credibility in the black community by doing all types of sort of just malicious practices, right? To take advantage. Absolutely. Community. Oh, yes. is, um, it's created a, a lot of mistrust within the community. Still to this day, um, you know, over 10% of, of the black population in the United States is unbanked. Don't, doesn't have a bank account at all. It's using, you know, fast currency exchanges and, or things of that nature to actually transact cash and, and money. Right, and those take and, huge percentages. And, and it's really disappointing, especially considering that it's been proven in the past that some banks had charged African-Americans more for a loan, given them much more of a runaround when granting them a mortgage. And, and you have turned this on its head and said, I'm here. So how many people do you serve now? What are your numbers? We serve over 40 members all across the country from L.A., to New York, as well as internationally, um, we have members. Um, so we're, we're servicing members all across the, the Black diaspora, from the Caribbean to Africa to the United States, with, of course, with the largest customer base in, in the United States. Um, and these are Black men. We, we started with sort of the focus of this is a product that we really think millennials are going to want and, mm-hmm. you know, are instantly going to, you know, sort of Um, be aligned with. And what we found post-launch in 2016 is that this is really a product offering that is intergenerational, right? There's just different age groups who are interested in what we're doing from a standpoint of the mission, the larger vision that we're going after, and with the understanding that there's different layers of value that you can get out of what we're offering. It's not just the automated savings piece that we're offering. We're also on the back end of that the members themselves are pooling those savings together and actually investing in real estate, investing in ETFs, investing in the stock market together, right? Investing in these various assets that are now not just sort of creating a foundation for themselves in terms of being able to handle any emergencies that should come up in their lives, mm-hmm. that they have money you know, stowed away to handle that, which there's a lot of research around financial shocks and financial emergencies and the fact that not just in the black community, but this is a this is a very much so an American problem. One out of two Americans cannot afford a one thousand dollar emergency right now. It happened to them tomorrow. Yeah. Right. So if that's a medical emergency, that's an emergency related to your child. Right. One out of two Americans would have to go to the bank to try to get a loan. They would have to go to a payday lender they would have to beg, borrow, or do something in order to come up with that cash. I just think 
there's so much potential for this country to advance within this area. That should not be a statistic that we are proud of. That should just not exist, not within this nation. And so we are starting with the black community because it it just so happens to be the case that that number is even higher for us, mm. right? 70% mm-hmm. of black millennials could not afford a $1,000 emergency, right? So seven out of 10 of us cannot afford that. So it's, a, it's, it's an even more significant problem with us. But what's fascinating is that it's it's really universal, right? Financial wellness is something that I think all Americans can get behind. It plays a role in all of our lives. Yes. So it really is a universal message. So that's bro capital. I'm going to spell it again in case people are listening and want to be a part of this. B-R-E-A-U-X. But As we wrap up, it's really important to me, Darius, because I've got an 18-year-old and I'm going through what has been a horrific college application process. It's a nightmare for a lot of people now. And having founded Million Dollar Scholar and having gone through this process, I want to just broaden the aperture when it comes to your vision of this process. How do you feel about standardized testing? Because, you know, I I think it's all kind of rigged, if you ask me, because, you know, in the wealthier communities, they can pay for very expensive tutors. And then you ask yourself, well, what's a better trick? The rich kid whose parents got to pay for a tutor to help them get a better grade, a better score on the SAT or the ACT, or the kid who grew up in Harlem or the kid who grew up like you on the south side of Chicago who landed maybe a lower score, but That's a miracle, having hit a certain brass ring. Do you think standardized testing should be eliminated? I think if it shouldn't be eliminated, its significance should be significantly reduced, Mm. right? To to a level where it's, if we're prioritizing, you know, the 10 most important things that would determine, you know, someone's aptitude or someone's ability to make it in college, that's at least at minimum number seven on the list, right, of of the things that are really taken into consideration to really what colleges are doing is saying we're putting a stamp on what we feel someone's potential is. Oh, I think I the, research, the mm-hmm. research is very clear that standardized testing, you know, on, it, it does such a minimal job in really predicting who's actually successful once they enroll. Right. And, and who who actually retains, who actually goes on to get a degree. Um, I think that the intent was good, you know, when when sort of standardized tests were introduced. I just think we're, we're living, you know, I think the times have shifted. And I think there are better ways to go about sort of assessing students. Well, it doesn't measure grit and it doesn't measure a kid who decides he is going to, on his own, figure out a way to raise a million dollars for his own college education. And to that end, I need to get your thought on student loans. Uh, We have an entire generation, several now, of indentured servants. I know 50-year-olds who are still paying off their student loans. How do we get out from under this disaster? I think, first and foremost, there has to be accountability had on all of the stakeholders who have played a role in us getting to this point in the first place. The colleges actually have to raise their hand and say, we played a role in this. Absolutely. This happened under under our watch. Because Darius, they know people are desperate to get that college degree and that they will find money to borrow. And therefore, 
colleges keep raising tuition way higher than the rate of inflation. Indeed, well beyond, right? College prices increasing well beyond any other any other metric within the economy mm-hmm. at large, right? Mm-hmm. Except and maybe so, healthcare, you know. Even but even even more so than healthcare, actually. If you're mm-hmm. looking at the year over year increases in education, particularly at private institutions, right? It's very clear education ha- it it really is something to where we're putting students in the position where even if you have the potential, even if you would be an amazing student, right? Even if this would have a tremendous impact on your life, right? Finances is a really a determining factor of many people's ability to go, right? Indeed. And their ability to retain. And um, that doesn't bode well for us as a nation, right? When we think about what what we're attempting to move to, the future that we want to see for ourselves, for our future generations, it's very important that students be put in positions to be able to get the higher education that they need. And that doesn't just mean college, but any training mm-hmm. that's going to develop them as a human being, right? And put them in position to be a better person. We have to find alternative ways to go about funding. So again, there are a lot of stakeholders who must hold themselves accountable. And the reason why I know this and you know can, can validate this, I have a master's degree in education. I, I studied this. This is one of the things that I studied. So there are a lot of stakeholders from a policy level who have to raise their hand and say, we hold some accountability and this is what we intend to do mm-hmm. to mitigate this moving forward. Today, you have three companies, a book, a long list of accomplishments that is getting longer and longer by the day. Darius, <laughs> as we wrap up, what's the next brass ring that you'd like to grab for yourself? Bro Capital, we've been getting so many different inquiries across the country about, are you all doing the same thing for Black women? Is this something where we're going to see something for women? And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to say that in 2020, there, there will be a sister organization that is going to be founded. And it's going to be led very similar to the way that Bro Capital is by Black men, for Black men. Cis Capital will be by Black women, for Black women, and will be launching in 2020. I'm extremely excited for that. We always had that vision. From the very beginning, we knew that this was something that was was universal. And so I'm just excited to see what, what that will transform into and what that will mean for so many folks who've been looking out for it. We are, too. We are so excited, too, for you. Darius, thank you for sharing your story. We wish you the best of success. We hope it grows and grows. Come back and talk to everyone talks to Liz. You're exactly the type of story we love to tell. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Darius Quarles of Bro Capital and Million Dollar Scholar. So inspirational. You talk about grit. You talk about potential. He had it. He has it. And he is using it to make the world a better place. And he's sharing what he had to learn himself under very tough circumstances. Folks, thank you so much for listening to Everyone Talks to Liz. And I hope you'll join me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, course on the Fox Business Network for the Claim and Countdown. I have my eye on the markets and your money. You've got to check in on that, right? So good luck and thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time.